Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hello, thank you for joining our podcast. Today, Jack and I are going to discuss the mechanics of value investing. We'll talk about the important details once you consider when building or analyzing a value strategy. Today, we're going to talk about your article, Mechanics of Value Investing. And I think um, what you were attempting to do here is talk about the various styles or approaches that one can have because value investing and all types of investing can be defined uh, very broadly or differently. And so I think you're going to use the value investing styles to sort of help us understand the different types of ways that you can define value investing. So maybe you want to explain a little bit more about what you were trying to accomplish with the article, and then we'll kind of get into the details. Yeah, the goal of the article is, you know, many people think that a lot of different value investing strategies are the same. So, you know, if they look at the value funds out there or the value ETFs out there, they think they're very similar. And, and the reality is when you dig beneath the surface, there are a lot of decisions that need to be made in order to build a value portfolio. And how you make those decisions plays a huge role in the type of strategy you end up with, how that strategy behaves, how easy it is for investors to stick with. A lot of things that are really important to an investor investing in those portfolios change with respect to how you know all the different inputs that go into that. And so the point of the article was to try to look at those various things, decisions that have to be made to build a value portfolio and, and see how differences in those things can impact the actual strategy in the end. Okay. Um, and when we're, for our purposes, when we're looking at these different types of value approaches, it's, we kind of define them or group them into certain styles or individuals, I guess I would say, um, that you outlined in your article, starting with Graham, I think. Yeah, you know, when, when we're talking, for this article, what we're talking about is more of the traditional academic definition of value investing, which is things that are cheap based on current fundamentals. So price to book, price to earnings, price to cash flow, EV to EBITDA, whatever it is, you know, things that are cheap now. Um, but in reality, there there's other things that some people use the word value to associate with. So mm -hmm. what, what we're talking about here is more of a Ben Graham style of value investing. But another style of value investing that, you know, sometimes the word value gets used with is more of a Warren Buffett style. And the Warren Buffett style is not just buy the cheapest companies, the Warren Buffett style is find good companies and try to buy them at an attractive price. So it, in, in factor terms, it's more of a mix of quality and value together. Mm -hmm. and, and then you have some people who have taken it a little bit further. You know, Bill Miller was popular for this in the, in the late 90s, where you can take companies that are rapidly growing and you can discount what you think is going to happen in the future for, say, a high-tech growth name and you, or high-growth tech name, and you can bring that back to the present and you can say, all right, in today's terms, this company actually is a value because there's so much value sitting out there in the future. Right. But when, for this purpose of this article, we're really talking about the Ben Graham style of value investing. So we're talking about value in relation to current fundamentals. Okay. Okay, that's helpful. Um, and we want to talk now about sort of the process of building a value portfolio. So now that we have that set up, we can talk about what goes into that. Yeah, and you know, and the first step with building any portfolio is what universe are you going to use? And so for us, there, there's about 2,800 stocks out there right now that are that we consider liquid enough to be traded. Mm 
Um, there's obviously a lot more stocks than that, but when you start imposing you know, minimum requirements in terms of market cap and you know, daily dollar volume, you end up with about 2,800 stocks. And so that's about the most stocks you'll see in, in any fund, unless you're, unless you're looking at a micro cap fund. That's the, most, mm-hmm. that's the biggest universe you'll see. Right. But most funds end up whittling that down some. So the, the choice you have with a universe is sort of a balance. You know, if, you, if you select from all 2,800 of those companies, you're going to get small cap names in your portfolio. And you know, research would indicate getting small cap names in your portfolio might help you to get better exposure to these factors and get more excess return over time. But the small cap names are, are more illiquid and the small cap names are a little tougher to get in and out of. And so what you'll see with a lot of value funds is that they'll exclude the small caps, you know, and they'll end up operating in mostly in the mid and large cap range. Mm-hmm. But whichever way you do it, it's important to understand when you're, when you're looking at a value strategy, the first thing you want to understand is, you know, what is the universe they're selecting from? Am I going to get just large cap S&P 500 stocks here? Or am I going to get mid cap stocks as well? Or am I going to get small cap stocks? You know, and that's, that's a very important first step, I think, in looking at any value strategy. Okay. What's next? So the next step is uh, picking which metric you're going to use. So we, we talked about some of those earlier. Obviously, things like the P-E ratio and the price to book and the price to sales are very popular, but there's some other ones that are a little lesser known, like EV to EBITDA. But every value strategy picks one of these or a group of these and uses that as their basis to determine what stocks are actually values. And so it's important to understand which ones are used because it can mean many different things in terms of the sector allocation of the portfolio, in terms of the types of stocks you get in there. And and so it's it's important to understand what, when you're building a value strategy, it's important to understand what goes into the strategy. And, you know, there's really two ways you can do it. Some people feel like they've identified the best metric to use, you know, so EV to EBITDA is very popular right now. You'll see a lot of ETFs that use that. And, and the people that use that have decided that that's, you know, they think that's the best way to value companies. That's the best way to build a value strategy. And, you know, in reality, that has one of the best long-term returns. So it makes sense to say, you know, if you were going to pick a metric to use, that might be a good one to choose. But other people say, well, I just don't know, you know, I can't predict in advance which value metric is going to work best. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to use all of them. You know, I'm going to build what we would call a composite where I take every single value metric you know, I rank all the stocks based on all the different metrics, and I take the stocks with the best combined ranking. And, you know, that has the benefit of smoothing things out over time, but it also mm-hmm. has the benefit of I don't have to try to predict in advance which, the best met- which metric is the best one to use. I can just use all of them, and then, you know, I know I'll have the best one, I'll have the worst one, but on, on average, I'll get about the average of all the different metrics. Right. A couple things on that. I think that that sort of composite approach is what o- O'Shaughnessy uses in his value composite. Uh, methodology, which is using a number of different value metrics. And I think what his research shows, to your point about the smoothing, is, you know, in different um, points in time, because he tests his strategies back to like the mid-50s, I think, you know, using the the various metrics, you see different periods where price to book might do better than price to earnings or price to cash flow might do better than price to book. And so you have this jockeying of what metric what value metric is best throughout history and so by using the combination you know you're not you sort of smooth smooth that out like you're to your point and you're taking less emphasis on one of the one of the one of the metrics over the other um and there is this constant like battle if you will between when metrics may work a little bit better um than others like in this most recent period we've been through with the financial crisis since 2008, 2009, since the great financial crisis, you know, price to cash flow, 
I think has been a very strong value metric because companies generating a lot of cash are the ones that have been rewarded um, largely over something like price to book. Right. You know, in, in the recent 10 years, price to book has been the worst metric. And, and, you know, there's also an argument, you know, in terms of why price to book may not work as well as it used to with intangible assets, in, you know, accounting mm -hmm. for maybe 80% of the assets in the economy, you could make a good case why price to book doesn't work anymore. But price to book was very popular and, and remains very popular. And so do I want to put my entire value portfolio, you know, with price to book as my metric? Maybe not. Maybe, maybe I'm better off just using all of them. And that way, you know, I don't, if something else becomes the next price to book, you know, some other metric that we think now is great ends up being the one that's the worst going forward. You know, why, you know, hitch my wagon to that? Why, why you know, associate myself with just one metric when I don't have to? What do you think, if you are an investor looking at like a, a value ETF, um, I mean, many of these are rules-based. So I guess in the prospectus or in the marketing documents, they're probably going to tell you what factors or what metrics they're looking at. Um, I'm just trying to think from an investor's perspective, like if they wanted to do a, a deeper dive and really understand what, go, what value measures being looked at, I mean, where would they, it's probably being written about in, the, in like the ETF marketing materials, I would imagine, right? It's, it's actually usually pretty high up in the summary prospectus. So there's an investment strategy section of the summary prospectus, which is you know, usually in the first few pages. Okay. And especially for index-based ETFs, they'll give the rules of the index. And, you know, right. in there, they'll usually talk about which metrics are being used um, yeah. and, or whether they're using a composite of metrics. So that's so an interesting thing. You know, you might be looking at two value ETFs. One uses the price to book. One uses the price to cash flow. You would expect the price to cash flow one to be a better performing one. Um, and sort of having that understanding, I think, would be important, not just looking at the performance, but actually sort of the what and the why and the driver behind how those stocks are selected, which in turn influences the performance. Right. So a good, a good example would be, let's take EV to EBITDA and price to book. So EV to EBITDA is used by a lot of value ETFs. And, and if you look in their portfolios and you look at the sector breakdown, what you're going to find is the EV to EBITDA ETFs typically don't have any financials because mm -hmm. fi evaluating financials, you know, with EV to EBITDA really doesn't work. So those will have 0% financials. And then you go into price-to-book-based value portfolios, and they're probably going to have, some of them have 40% financials. Mm. And so that, that's an example of how the metric can be really important because you're getting two portfolios that call themselves value. One has 40% financials. One has no financials. And so as an investor, you know, I might want to know that before I pick my, my value ETF. You know, mm -hmm. I may have an opinion on what's going to happen with financials, or I may not, but I still want to know, am I going to have a lot of financials, or am I going to have, you know, no financials? Just to relate it a little bit back to the way our models are built too is like when so we track a lot of different strategies on validity and we use a lot of different strategies in our investment process. But even the value strategies, you know, the value criteria or metrics are one of many different factors or investment criteria being used. So like our Ben Graham model, you know, it uses PE and price to book, but then it also uses some. Uh, like financial strength metrics and other met metrics to basically whittle down the list of stocks. So I guess all I'm trying to say is that, you know, the way our strategies largely, most of them use value, these value metrics are one input variable or criteria, you know, usually par as part of a larger investment strategy or formula. 
That's right. And you'll, you'll see that with the value ETFs that are out there as well. You know, typically they don't just say, you know, buy the cheapest 5% of the market and call it a day. Mm-hmm. You know, usually there's some sort of other quality checks or, or something else going on right. besides okay. just buy cheap stocks. Yeah. All right. That was good. Um, the next um, the next point that you bring up is how many stocks are being held um, in the underlying portfolio. That's a big, you know, that's something you want to understand. And there can be large differences in value portfolios with the pure number of holdings. Right. I sort of look at with, with a value portfolio, I sort of look at it as a balance between, you know, factor exposure and on, on the other end, you know, diversification. So if I want the most factor exposure, I probably want to get, you know, a value portfolio that has, say, I mean, there's not an exact number, but something like 40 or 50 stocks. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's going to give me very aggressive exposure to the factor. If I want to look a lot like the S&P 500, but just have a slight value tilt, well, then I might have, you know, hundreds of stocks. And, and so, you know, there's a, there's a sliding continuum that goes on there, you know, where you, you probably get the most factor exposure at this end, but you get the most diversification and the easier ride at this end. And yeah. it's, you know, it's a balance for investors. And it's important to look at that just so you understand, you know, if I'm somebody who ends up on the end with the 40 or 50 stock portfolio and I can't ride out extended periods of underperformance, well, you know, I, I'm going to get much worse results from that 40 or 50 stock portfolio than I am from the 500 stock portfolio, even though the 40 or 50 stock portfolio might do better because I'm going to bail on the 40 or 50 stock <clears> portfolio <throat> when it's underperforming. And there's another wrinkle there too. Like if you're taking a list of, you know, whatever, 500 stocks, and you want to tilt them towards value, you may rank them based on some value metric, whatever, price to cash flow, price to book, or what have you, and you can kind of rank order those, or maybe, you know, have a way to tilt that portfolio more towards those value names. The way we run value strategies is we are focused on getting the very top names according to a distinct set of criteria, some being those value criteria. So all I'm trying to say is that like when you're when you're running, there's a difference between, you know, weighting an index or a, a list of hundreds of securities, you know, using a value factor and then contrasting that with like trying to find a list of highly, you know, of names that score the best according to um, a set of fundamental criteria that may include uh, value factors. That's right. And you know, what you're talking about, what we do, the more aggressive approach, you know, that that typically gets you the more, the greater factor exposure and, and the greater tracking error. And then the reweighting approach, you know, you, you effectively, you own the same stocks as the index, just in different weights. So your return is not going to be all that different than the index. And so for people who have trouble sticking with a strategy, you know, something like that might actually work better because, you know, you, you don't have to worry about the huge ups and downs. Yeah. And our grand model, you know, at any one time that may only pass, I don't know, 20 to 30 stocks with like a certain score that would be enough for those por- for those stocks to make it in the portfolio. You know, we can't, our grand model isn't going to score 500 names just because the criteria are so stringent. That's right. So. And, and that's common with a lot of our strategies. You know, when you have very stringent criteria, you're only going to get a very small group of stocks anyway. So it's hard to build, you know, a 500 stock portfolio or something like that. Um, the third point is how often to rebalance. So, you know, what we've done here for a number of years is, is follow a number of different types of rebalancing frequencies. We have portfolios that are rebalanced monthly, portfolios that are rebalanced quarterly, portfolios that are rebalanced annually, and we actually have uh, tax-efficient strategies as well reba- that where we can rebalance models tax-efficiently. 
So, you know, but that rebalancing technique is obviously a very important driver of how a portfolio is managed and that influences the return. So do you just want to shake that out a little bit? Is there something specific you wanted to highlight there? Yeah, you know, with value of all the different factors we follow, you follow value is probably the least important to rebalance frequently. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you're running momentum portfolios, you want to see fairly frequent rebalancing because that momentum can break down, and when it breaks down, you want to get those stocks out of your portfolio. Right. Value is a different thing. You know, value takes a long time to materialize, and so mm-hmm. what we found with our strategies, and you know, this is also true of publicly available portfolios. You know, value works fine when it's rebalanced less often, so we don't see the need as much to rebalance value monthly. You know, value can do okay rebalance quarterly. Value can even do well when it's rebalanced once a year. Because again, you're you're waiting for that value to be realized. You're not worried about something that's, you know, near term like momentum. Yep. That makes sense. Makes sense. Um, the next point is how you handle industry concentration, industry and sector exposures and concentration within a value portfolio. Yeah, and you know, we talked a little bit about that, about that before, but <clears throat> Because we talked about it, you know, from the perspective of price to book portfolios may have a lot of financials, but there's got to be an upper limit. You know, most of the time there is some sort of upper limit of how many financials you want to hold. Mm-hmm. So if if you're running a value fund, you probably don't want to have 100% financials. And you know, so that that's something again you might be able to get from the perspectives from from some funds you look at. But it, it's important to understand, you know, where that limit is. You know, some funds, like some some popular funds, will try to maintain the sector weightings of the benchmark. You know, they feel like overweighting in a certain sector is a risk factor they just don't want to take. So, you know, their their industry and sector breakdown will look just like the benchmark, whereas other funds, like some of the ones I referenced earlier, you know, might go 40 or 50% financials. So it's just important to understand what their sector weighting strategy is and also what the limits are within that strategy, mm-hmm. just to and make sure of, it's something you're comfortable with. Yeah, a lot of times, like if you go to Morningstar, you might be able to type in uh, funds symbol or ETF symbol and see how that portfolio, you know, sector exposure lines up relative to the benchmark. So that's a pretty quick and easy way that you'll be able to, I think, uncover that if you don't want to dig into the prospectus and try to find that rule if you can even find it. No, um, I agree. The uh, last point that you're making here is how the uh, portfolio, how the positions in the portfolio are actually weighted. Yeah, no, the point there was just, you know, there is most quants like us, you know, we tend to equal weight everything we do. And, and, you know, a lot of quants tend to do that, but there are other ways to do it. Obviously, the market is market cap weighted and some funds that want to look more like the market will market cap weight their positions. But there's also things like conviction weighting, you know, take my positions I feel the, the strongest about and weight them the most. There's even things like inverse volatility weighting where I'm trying to have each position add an equal amount of risk to the portfolio. And so, the, the, the stocks that are the least volatile, I weight them the most heavily. And so to try to equate risk across all the positions. Okay. So th- there's a lot of different ways to do it. There's obviously no right answer. It's just mm-hmm. important to understand what's being done. Because if, if you get market cap weighting, you're going to get something much closer to the market. If you have equal weighting or some other weighting, weighting scheme, you're going to get something a little bit different than the market. And, and so it's just important to understand that, I think, when you're going into a, a value strategy. Yeah, so these are all really great points. I think there's a lot of, and there's probably a lot of other things we could talk about in terms of how when these portfolios are constructed and what goes into them. But I think, you know, the goal is trying to explain to investors all these little nuances and how, you know, you can have strategies with value in their name and they actually can look very, very different. So I think, you know, this is a good, 
this is a good overview of trying to help people try to understand the things that will make you know strategies look very different. So thanks for joining us, everyone. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.